The debate about whether Ohio's Republican Party is far right enough continues and the party may be in a civil war. It's the first topic today on this episode of Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. It's always fun to talk about a party in Ohio that is tearing itself apart. Let's get going. With Republicans controlling nearly every statewide office, why is the state Republican Party in a bit of a civil war? Who's trying to stage a coup a little over two months before Election Day? Lisa, you would think these people would be happy as can be with their current state of being. But no, some think they need to become more right than right. Well, and actually, this tempest in a teapot has been brewing since, you know, early in the year. Because as you remember, uh, you know, Governor Mike DeWine was fighting for an endorsement from his own party. I mean, there were a lot of people that didn't want to endorse him for governor again. Um, They did finally endorse him 36 to 26. But that really kind of started the division. So Summit County GOP Chair Brian Williams is stepping into the fray. He's also the vice chair of the Ohio Republican Party. He says he will challenge the current chair, Bob Paduchik, at the the September 9th organizational meeting. Paduchik took over from Jane Timken back in 2021. So he's only been in the job, you know, about a year and a half. But, you know... uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens. Brian Williams is a long history. He has a long history in Summit County as a political operative. He's been the chair of that county's uh, Republican Party since 2014. And he thinks he has the votes to beat Paducic. So we'll see what happens. And part of this is about the fact that the party did endorse Mike DeWine, the incumbent, which is not abnormal. Often parties will endorse the incumbents in an open primary they won't but it's just kind of odd to me that this is all about that but the reason was they didn't think mike dewine some people didn't think he was right enough i mean here's the guy that that led the ohio campaign for donald trump's re-election and trump won pretty big in ohio but he wasn't trumpy enough and so there were people fighting the endorsement thinking it could go to jim renacy i guess which was never going to happen uh, and that's what's driving this summit county always has had an outsized influence on the state republican party for years it was alex arshenkoff who was the the power broker down there i wonder what it is about summit <laughs> county that plays such a role in the republican yeah, party it's interesting you know and williams you know he sees blood in the water he is saying that paduchik's operational style divides and weakens the party and they need to energize and unite the party before the November election. So he's kind of running out of time. But there's also issue over internal party finances. I mean, some of this, you know, group called for audits and a public release of their books, which was unsuccessful. So that's another thorn in their side. I don't know. Maybe it's just because when you have all the power, you have to fight about something. So you fight with each other. I mean, normally you'd be fighting Democratic Party, but that's no fight. They've crushed them. The Democratic Party in Ohio was almost non-existent. So now they're they're fighting each other. Be interesting to see if Summit County takes hold of the Republican Party in Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. While Cleveland continues to pay wage tax refunds to people who work from home, many city suburbs reaped a windfall as a result of working from home. Laura, what's the story? Although, which suburb took a major hit? 
Mayfield, it's lost the bulk of its tax base. They've collected just $5 million in withholding taxes through the first eight months of this year. That's well short of the $13 million it collected by this time in 2019. Those are uh, numbers from the Regional Income Tax Agency. Everybody knows it as RITA, which does the bulk of collecting for lots of the suburbs throughout Northeast Ohio. So Sean McDonald, Hats off to him because he has a huge chart of suburbs throughout Northeast Ohio and how they're doing with their withholdings. Uh, Westlake and Strongsville, they have a ton of businesses. They also have a ton of people that live there are up at 6 and 17%. And then largely residential communities are gaining big. Bay Village, 86%. It's up. And then in between are places like Shaker Heights, Fairview Park. They're each up more than 30%. My suburb is 41%. And so it's, you know, if you're living and working in the same place in your living room, then you're sending your taxes to your your own hometown. What what this proves is how deceptive Cleveland has been about what its losses are. I mean, we had the story last week where they had they claimed they were almost halfway done paying refunds and it was single digit millions of dollars. And we know that the bill is going to be much higher than that because so many people work from home and it appears Cleveland's paying small refunds first, which is probably unfair. But all that money that Cleveland loses goes somewhere, and that's where the suburbs are benefiting. I wonder if this will wane, though, that, that, that the, what they've got now is the most they're going to get as more and more employers are saying they want more of a hybrid where people are in the office three days a week or two days a week, in which case they're going to give more money to Cleveland, although many workers want to work in the suburbs, even if it's not in Mayfield. Right, because then they don't have to park in a garage and and walk to their offices. I think you're probably right. I think this might be the high watermark, but it's not just, I mean, there's so many factors here, right? You can't say it's just uh, the work from home because pay is up nationally 5.3% in the last year alone. So people are just making more money. And so, I mean, we can't discount that. But, you know, I don't even think that it is as bad for Cleveland as it could be. I was talking to a neighbor and she said she's always worked from home, but her, her uh, company takes Cleveland taxes out. And her accountant just said, it's too much work. Cleveland's hard to deal with. You don't want to deal with it. And so so there's gotta be people that are out there that are still paying to Cleveland that don't have to. Or or there are people that will figure out a way not to, because they don't want to deal with Cleveland. That's the worst reputation Cleveland can have. We talked about this the other day. You know, they want people to come back downtown to work. Why would they when Cleveland won't give them back the money that they owe? I think Cleveland's practice is going to make it much easier for employers to say, let's let's be out in the suburbs. Let's not do this. You don't like the aggravation of the parking and all the other problems. Plus, Cleveland won't give you back your money when they owe it to you. Good yeah, stuff. and prog- pro- I just want to say Progressive is one of the few companies you, you know of that they're actually taking it out where people are working. A lot of places are still taking it out, and it's up to the workers to get the refunds later. So still kind of a hodgepodge. Check out the story. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is a researcher on drug overdose deaths predicting Ohio is about to endure a tsunami of them? Layla, this is a distressing story, but if it's accurate, we have a clarion call and we can do things about That's it. That's right. Lorianne Post, she's a researcher at Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. She's been studying trends in opioid overdose deaths related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And her model suggests that the current rise in opioid deaths is not expected to slow anytime soon. In fact, this might be the warning 
for one of the largest death waves due to opioids the country has seen yet. And Ohio could be on the front line of this once again. According to data from the CDC, Ohio ranked fourth in the rate of drug overdose mortality in 2020. 75% of those deaths were due to opioid overdose. The overwhelming majority of those, 82%, are synthetic opioids manufactured illicitly rather than prescription drugs being resold on the street. But the problem with that data is that by the time data is released, it's always a year behind. And by then, it's really too late to make any policy changes that can save lives. So Lori Ann Post set out to make these predictions based on what she was seeing in the data over time. She looked at whether deaths were accelerating or decelerating over time. She also broke down urban and rural counties separately. She was shocked to see that the data from 2020 predicted a 50% increase in deaths in 2021. And then the actual data for 2021 confirmed her predictions. Strikingly, what's coming, her her data predicts you know, that, that this new scourge doesn't appear to discriminate between rural and urban communities the way it has in the past. And whereas the third wave was due largely to the influx of fentanyl, this fourth wave of overdose deaths looks like it will likely be the result of, of multi-drug cocktails and mixing of opioids and stimulants that can make overdoses difficult to reverse which is just terrifying. But it's this look into this crystal ball that she has created using data. And you're right, it's it's awful, it's terrifying, but again, gives us a moment where we can prepare. Right. A few years ago, there was a real push to spread fentanyl test strips to as many people as could get them so that people would not inadvertently use illegal drugs that were loaded with fentanyl. Because we know a lot of overdose deaths are people that think they're taking one thing, but uh, it's got carfentanyl or fentanyl in it, which is much more toxic. Uh, And getting those strips out would help people avoid that inadvertent kind of thing. We haven't talked about that much lately, but I would think that would be one of the best ways to reduce deaths is to just get those onto the street everywhere you can so that people have them at the ready. Right. And then what other kind of public awareness campaign can be designed around this idea of, you know, this multi-drug cocktail and and mixing of opioids and stimulants? That's another animal altogether, but you know, to attack that problem before it becomes the next wave of death, you know, is is important. And so I think that's that's what she's aiming for is to start that conversation. And we have plenty of money to throw at it because of the settlements with the companies that caused the opioid crisis. Cuyahoga County is sitting in a very good position loaded with cash. It's just, what do you do with it? Hopefully, the people that really are focused on this problem will look at this research and get serious about trying to head off at least part of it before we start seeing the death rate rise. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is Ohio about to take another step into the green economy manufacturing sector? Lisa, what's the rumor that no one will confirm, even though they're all teasing it? (laughs) And it's kind of getting everybody excited. But according to a report yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, Honda is planning a $4.4 billion electric vehicle battery plant somewhere in Ohio, quote unquote. And this would be a joint venture with the South Korean giant manufacturing firm of LG. 
a construction is allegedly to begin next year and start manufacturing by 2025. Lieutenant Governor John Husted says he he retweeted this Wall Street Journal story and he says he promises that there's more to come. And DeWine issued a Monday statement. He had a vague description of a plant somewhere in the U.S., but no com- immediate confirmation. Jobs Ohio, no comment. They're deferring everything to Honda executives, but they did point to Ohio's skilled workforce and their great supply chain. So yeah, this, and it, it would be interesting because LG already has a presence in Ohio. They have an auto plant in Marysville. So they're thinking maybe this battery plant might go there. That's North of Columbus, 15,000 workers there. They opened a battery plant in Youngstown in conjunction with GM. Um, and also LG is going to open two automotive uh, parts the factories in Ravenna, according to the Kent Record Courier newspaper. So they already have a presence in Ohio. It would certainly make sense here. Well, and Houston and DeWine are between a rock and a hard place. They would love nothing more than to trumpet another major manufacturing plant opening in Ohio as they head into the final two months of a reelection campaign. But they don't want to make them angry by <laughs> jumping the gun. So once the Wall Street Journal reports that, they're kind of in a tough spot. They want to be able to talk about it, but they can't. So I think they they probably did as much tap dancing as they could get away with. And they're probably leaning on Honda now. Come on, please, please, please announce this. We want to stay in office. <laughs> yeah, maybe they'll we'll announce see. after November 8th. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think so. We'll see. Maybe it'll come out today. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have written plenty about the policies of East Cleveland Police Chief Scott Gardner, whose officers get involved in dangerous chases with a frightening regularity. We did a whole series on this last year. But Gardner's policies are not what have him in trouble all of the sudden. Laura, why is the East Cleveland Police Chief under criminal indictment? Theft, although we don't know a whole lot about what exactly how this happened because we don't have details from prosecutors. But he's accused of aggravated theft involving the Ohio Department of Taxation um, and several tax charges for the years from 2014 through 2019, also charged with theft in office and grand theft. And that involves the city and telecommunications fraud. So Gardner is on leave while the city you know, reviews the indictment and Captain Brian Gerhard would serve as the acti- acting chief. So Gardner is accused of using his office in aid of committing the theft, taking more than $7,500 between 2018 and 2020. Also alleges that he took money from the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge and or the city of East Cleveland and or the East Cleveland Police Department. And that is, again, more than $7,500. Yeah, I wonder what this is really about. You know, Gardner is attending law school. You want, he's trying to become a lawyer and his policies are unpopular. I mean, what he's done, the high speed chases, the crashes, and, and he's been unapologetic about it in the mm-hmm. face of wide scale criticism. And sometimes you wonder if these investigations get launched almost as retaliation. The idea that that we're unable to discern what he actually is accused of stealing makes this seem fishy. Is this is this a persecution? What is really going on here? And it, it, the indictment uh, ended up in the docket Friday, but we couldn't read it. We got mm-hmm. the indictment yesterday, but we can't get a single detail about what he's actually accused of stealing. 
Well, I guess he's accused probably of stealing money, but right, but no, how but, he did it? Right, but but what is the story? I mean, is this going right, to come exactly. down to semantics? Like he used some money for expenses for the office and is being accused of stealing it. I, I think when a, a high profile public official like Gardner is accused of a crime, the people accusing him should be very open about what well, they're saying. I, I completely agree with that, right? They shouldn't just slide this in on a Friday afternoon and then not answer questions about it. So yeah, they should come right out and say, here's what it is. And this is what we believe he did. And he gets a fair trial. And we've tried talking to the attorney and the attorney says they don't know, you know, Gardner saying he doesn't know, which I mean, I guess is what you're going to say, right? Um, unless you don't have, know. I mean, unless I, you don't know, I mean, exactly. This, this is a stinky development. Now, maybe it'll come out today and we'll find out he's accused of taking all this money and putting it in his pocket. I mean, East Cleveland it, has no money. Like, I don't know where you're getting it if it's East Cleveland. They, look, They're broke. Look, for fairness sake, they should lay out their cards. What are they actually yeah. saying this guy did? He's a police chief. When's the last time we had a police chief get indicted around here? They owe it to the public. They owe it to East Cleveland. What are you saying he did? We're three days deep into this thing, and it's a mystery. Very odd. This doesn't happen with other criminal cases. Usually, when people get charged, we know the whole story. Why are they being secretive about this yeah, one? Here's a press release, usually. <laughs> yeah, it's just this one. This one's a stinky deal, and I think the, the prosecutor's office owes it to us to lay it out. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, the county commissioners of Cuyahoga and the county executive Armin Budish are hell-bent on building a jail on a toxic site, as we have detailed quite a bit. They were cowardly last week when they held a public hearing where 100 people showed up to say, don't do it, and they didn't even appear to hear them. So suddenly, they're putting the brakes on contracts that would help them remain hell-bent. What happened here? Well, I mean, there's no evidence that they won't go forward with this contract extension, but <laughs> the Cuyahoga County Board of Control didn't approve it yesterday, that's for sure. So the Board of Control is considering two amendments totaling close to $750,000 that, that would extend Jeff Applebaum's Project Management Consultants LLC contract for owner's representative services another seven months, and DLR Group's programming and planning services through 2023. This is all related to the big jail project. Applebaum and PMC's portion of that was for a $400,000 extension through July 31st. His contract would otherwise expire at the end of the year. They were expected, they being you know, Board of Control, they were expected to vote on it yesterday, but they tabled it because council members needed to have a better understanding of the scope and purpose of each of these items, according to council's chief of staff, Joe Nani. This is going to come back up at a future meeting, of course. Um, in, in the written responses to some of the council members' questions, the Department of Public Works and uh, said that some of that money is, is needed to cover what the county has already overspent on efforts to, quote, advance the project. The rest of the funding is needed to cover additional meetings and workshops moving forward. In Board of Control documents, it said that the primary goal of these services is to assist the county and justice system stakeholders to review facility requirements and opportunities and blah, blah, blah. Uh, the extension would bring PMC's total earnings on the jail project so far to $2.47 million since 2019. So, I mean, it's really unclear what 
this holdup signals. You know, of course, you know, like you said, members of the public were really irritated when none of their elected officials attended the public hearing on the jail last week, and they were just voicing their opposition and asking questions into the void, right? And, and it was just giving the general impression that the county doesn't really care what the public thinks, and and that <laughs> this plan to build the jail on that toxic site is just a runaway train and Jeff Applebaum is the conductor. So perhaps, Let, uh, you know, members of the council who sit on the board of control are trying to pump the brakes here. Well, except they're the ones that have been thrown coal into the, to the hopper. I wonder <laughs> whether they finally, they finally got through, you know, you ever, you ever see that the children's cartoon Horton hears a who have they finally heard it? Has the sound <laughs> finally gotten to them that the, the Cuyahoga County voters don't want them to proceed, that that this is a crescendo of people saying, don't do it. And and while they live in their isolation, not even showing up to hear from their constituents, did it finally get through? And is this a sign they're slowing it? Look, let's face it. Uh, Armin Budish is out of office come the end of December. There's not a whole lot of time to, to sign the contracts, to dot the I's and cross the T's. Our editorial board has said, don't do it, because the next guy coming in, whether it's Lee Weingarten or Chris Ronane, said they're not doing it. They'll just undo it the way Justin Bibb might be undoing the police station on Opportunity Corridor. Maybe these county council members who have to rely on getting reelected, and we will be aggressive with what they've done here when they're up for reelection, maybe they've decided, whoa, Maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe we shouldn't put inmates and guards on top of benzene that's so toxic that we have to put a vent around the building to get it to go up above the roof. So I'm being an optimist. This was very unexpected, right? We expected them to sign off on this and they didn't. Yeah, we completely it doesn't take expected long it. To... Yes. Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. So to gum this up just a little while pushes it to the next administration, mm -hmm. which is really what should happen. Right. Interesting development. We'll have to see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Football Hall of Fame Village has made lots of news in recent years with its massive development aimed at building its tourism profile. But man, that development has been costly and the company's stock is so low now it might get delisted. Lisa, they have a little bit of a cockamamie strategy to avoid that. What is it? Yeah, it even sounds weird. It's called a reverse stock split. So what they do in this situation is they combine 10 or more shares to get the total stock price above $1 a share, which is right about where they're trading now, anywhere between 75 cents and a dollar. Uh, shareholders must vote okay. If they do vote yes, then the Hall of Fame Village Board has until May of next year to do this reverse stock split. And what this happens is, is that investors will all own the same percentage of the company and the ratios could be anywhere from 10 to 1 to 25 to 1. But if the stock price goes or stays above a dollar, this reverse stock split may not be necessary. There's a shareholder meeting on September 29th. Um, they were warned by the NASDAQ back in May that they might be delisted soon. Um, even though the meeting is uh, September 29th, I believe voting on this reverse stock split will begin before then. So they may uh, approve it in this meeting. I, I don't really know. 
You get the feeling that they're out in the ocean, treading water, waiting for the big wave that will carry them to their future. And, and it just doesn't come. And so they just keep thrashing about. Their stock is falling. The development has been delayed. And they have this vision that once it's all done, people will come. The money will come. It'll be a central part of the Northeast Ohio tourism. But the final chapter isn't written yet. And this could go bad still. I don't know. I mean, I know that the Hall of Fame is very popular in Canton and it draws a, a lot of visitors and people are excited about the, you know, the village and all the new additions. So maybe they think that this money will be made up in future years. Yeah, it's a great vision. I mean, they're trying to do something that would be great for the region. It's just they, they it's been tough because of debt, because of COVID and all the things they've had to deal with. Uh, you you really do root for them to make it. We could use it as part of the massive tourism industry in Northeast Ohio. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This next story isn't a big one, but it does kind of get into the function of government and how government can create jobs. So how many jobs are Parker Hannafin and a software company planning to create with the job creation tax credits just approved by the Ohio Tax Credit Authority, Laura? So we're talking about 143 new jobs in Lake and Summit County if they both go through. However, to get the credit, they actually have to create the jobs. It's not like, here's your money, go create these jobs. And if they don't, oh, well. So um, nine companies got approved for the job creation uh, tax credits from the Ohio Tax Credit Authority. And Parker Hannafin got this eight-year tax credit. It's worth up to $520,000 for an expansion in Mentor. That's where they have a gas turbine fuel system division. And parts that they make there end up in very powerful engines like in aerospace or at ships at sea. So they're talking about 60 jobs there by the end of 2024. Also, they're retaining 120. 20 jobs. And then this company called DRB Systems uh, has 83 full-time jobs by the end of 2025. It's one of those things where it's almost nickel and diming to build it. It doesn't sound like a lot of jobs, but if you get 60 here and 60 there, you you help build the economy. These are higher paying jobs, I take it. So it's more of a serious manufacturing economy. Right. And I mean, $520,000, while that's a lot of money, is not I'm sure what Intel is getting, right? I mean, so yeah, it, it's a smaller scale kind of economic development. It's not the 66 million. The Cuyahoga <laughs> County is flushing down the toilet in their slush funds. So at least this has tangible results. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How did Eaton Corporation have a hand in the biggest political donation in history, one that provides more than a billion dollars to support conservative causes? Layla, a lot of pundits are saying this is unfairly changing the game. And it's odd how Eaton's money plays a role. In yeah, it. the New York Times broke this story last week. Here's here's the role Eaton played in this unprecedented transaction as, as Sabrina Eaton breaks it down for us. So we begin with an electronics manufacturing mogul named Berryside. Is that how you pronounce it? Barry, Berryside, who served as chairman and chief executive of a Chicago electrical device manufacturing company called Trip Light. He donated his shares in Trip Light to the nonprofit Marble Freedom Trust, which is controlled by GOP activist Leonard Leo. Leo chairs the Conservative Federalist Society. And so, you know, everybody probably remembers that Donald Trump let the Federalist Society pick all the judges when he was president. So that gives you an idea of how powerful the Federalist Society is. Well, Eaton acquired Trip Light a few months later 
And that resulted in a $1.65 billion infusion for the Marble Freedom Trust. That appears to have avoided tax liabilities, according to the New York Times. And we're talking about as much as $400 million in taxes. It's one of the largest contributions ever to a politically focused nonprofit, and it cements Leonard Leo's status as a conservative kingmaker in, in, uh, the, in the New York Times' view here. So, so this is uh, quite a big deal. Um, I mean, think about the messaging that, that a billion plus will pay for will just be blasted <laughs> by... But I mean, there's something seriously wrong with the way politics goes in this country ever since Citizen United. I mean, it's it's a lot of anonymous stuff, but wow, that's a lot of money to uh, pour into bamboozling people into voting for your causes. Um, And Eaton, even though it you know says it moved its headquarters to Ireland, we got that gigantic building out in the Chagrin Highlands where. A whole lot of people work. It's a big presence here. So it's interesting that Eaton Corporation provided the cash for this deal. That's right. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and that does it for a Tuesday discussion. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. And thank you for listening to this podcast. <laughs>